Welcome to the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, proudly brought to you by L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, where Rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners go and get engaged, 707 Walnut Philly, always at LLPavorsky.com. As always, I am Spike Eskin, along with the West Coast representation of the process, Liberty Baller Zone, Mike Levin. Morning, Mike. Morning, buddy. It's going to be a good podcast today, as we have uh, a guest who... I feel like we've been threatening since his article came out about uh, Sam Hickey and the Sixers a year and a half ago. Pablo Torre of ESPN fame will finally be on the podcast in a little bit, which I'm pretty excited about. It seems like uh, seems like the uh, the listeners on Twitter are pretty excited about it as well. I think it's a long time coming. He's the best. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Um, so podcast available on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play and SoundCloud. And I'm going to skip the reviews because we only have a little time, but please leave us a review on iTunes. We'll do twice as many last week because we only have a little time before we get to Pablo. Um, I also, and I feel like this is an entirely, um, different podcast, but have to, uh, acknowledge the trusters of the process in New York City who I met last night. Uh, Rick and Don and Neil and Allie and Charles and uh, there are a lot of them. There's like a, wait, why are you why are you in New York last night? What's that? Why are you in New York last night? Uh, I, it is. I'm telling you, it's entire. Like we should do it. In enti- it's an entirely different podcast. I'm telling you, like like <laughs> so it, I mean, it is. It is the sto- the story of you being in New York is a different podcast. This whole uh, the those people and this thing is an entirely different. I'm telling you, it is 50 minutes of a podcast, five zero minutes. There's no way we'll get through. Weber was there too. There is no uh, way that we could wrap up uh, even 10 percent of it before Pablo gets on. All right. All right. So I will tease that for next week. But um, but what I wanted to talk about before we had Pablo on, if it's okay with you, is I attended Wednesday's game with uh, the Spike Lee of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, Mike Weber, and our, our good friend, Ange Goldstein, and uh, another Mike uh, as well. But Weber Weber's behavior at this game was something to be uh, behold. It was a... It was a like I as much as and you know Mike Weber pretty well, right? And um, yeah. he was peak Weber. So could oh, I yeah. could I go into this with you? Could I explain to you what what I witnessed on Wednesday night? Sure. Yeah. Well, you were sitting very close. You had great seats. I've 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 come to learn. Yeah. So I sold my seats. Weber told me that he and Ange and Mike were coming up for the game. And that, uh, and I was selling my seats, and he said, "Hey, if I can get another seat, do you want to come sit with us?" And I said, "Sure." And because Weber is some big shot screenwriter or whatever, his agency makes some call, and our seats were immediately behind the, uh, like the uh, behind like the the courtside first two rows. So we were the first row. It's it's those two courtside rows, and then there's a space where you're not on the floor anymore, and then there's two rows before the lower level start so we're we're right there and we are sitting immediately behind and i don't normally sit down there ever 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 i don't actually even normally sit in press i i'll sit in my seats up in the second level and so we were it as it turns out we are immediately behind uh josh harris and majority owner josh harris david heller who's another owner and two 
unidentified guys who may be minority owners. There are a bunch of minority owners of the Sixers that I don't uh, that I don't recognize. The only two I recognize were Josh Harris and David Heller, and we're right by where we're sort of near the Sixers bench, so we're right by where Brett Brown is sort of standing in front of us the whole time, you know, right by like that coach line where they can't go by. That's that's really where we are. So Weber is wearing a T-shirt that said, Hinky died for our sins or whatever. And at every quiet moment of the game, Weber is screaming at Josh Harris to look at his T-shirt. And he is he is peppering them. He is peppering... Embiid, he's peppering Brett Brown, but mostly he is peppering these two owners who are right in front of us. And at a certain point, I did not see this, but but Weber says that Josh Harris looks back at him, acknowledges the T-shirt, and kind of gives him the like nod yes and internet whelp sign or whatever, like with the arms <laughs> up and the, the like the yeah I guess so or whatever, and then. Um, but Weber does not stop there with the acknowledgement of it. Um, he continues to pepper them until uh, David Heller, another Sixers owner, acknowledges Mike Weber and his T-shirt and gives him the, like, yeah, you're right, but please stop it, look um, back at us. The, yes, I get it, I get it, I get it, but this is a little much look. And then um, during a timeout, Weber begins to scream at Joel Embiid to look at his T-shirt. And he claims, I did not, again, I did not see this happen because <laughs> all of this is to the right of me. All these guys are to the right. Um, and it's sort of the, where, the, the place that we're sitting, people are walking in front of us constantly. Like the aisle is right in front of us. But Weber says that Embiid looks at the T-shirt, sort of nods yes and laughs as, as he sees the T-shirt. And then the only part of it that I did see was that it, and, and Weber does this when it's quiet. He does it during timeouts when there's no noise. Is the, the play is about to begin. Brett Brown is right in front of us. And Weber is screaming at Brett Brown to look at his shirt. And Brett Brown points at Weber while he's looking at the court. So points behind him and acknowledges <laughs> Weber. So this is like I, – I can't explain what – this is sort of like sitting in the front row of the concert and just being like – like a mad person until the lead singer points at you and acknowledges your existence. That's what I have a there. I have a question about the Brett Brown point. Yes, yeah. So he's staring at the court. The game is in in session. It's no, happening. Is about to start. It's about okay. to start. So there's right? a so yeah, there's gonna be, it's like a side out. Yeah. And before it happens, he while facing his body towards the court. Yes. Doesn't look and just like points behind him. Yes. Acknowledges. Yes. Clearly, and then nothing else. yeah. Clearly, acknowledge was clearly acknowledging him. Like it was. Was an, was an acknowledgement like, "Shut the fuck up." Here's no. A po- here's a point to satiate you. No, no, no. That was what Josh Harris and David Heller were doing. I think uh-huh. Brett Brown was just like I, I. I think to a certain extent they were all in the. They made this mistake. What they didn't understand, like uh, Mike Weber, at this point, and I would like to say I love him. For doing this, for being the person, I can't do that. Like I am, 
I guess I that is that is beyond what I can do. I am uh, permitted to do given my my job and my standing within the Philadelphia sports community. I cannot be that guy, but I can certainly sit next to that guy. I'm glad that Mike Weber exists and did that. But yeah. they they made the mistake is they encountered a real life Twitter troll and they quote tweeted him. And and they they like they they acknowledged him and they made the mistake of thinking that if they acknowledged him he would He'd stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it was quite the opposite. And the the um, I would say the best uh, or or the one of the funnest moments was that uh, Ange pointed out to me that the cap so sitting right in front of us at the table or whatever was Eddie Alvarez UFC champion Eddie Alvarez who is from Philadelphia and okay. the, the camera set up oh here's another thing i have another thing by the way after the Eddie Alvarez thing so Eddie Alvarez is sitting right in front of us and the camera is setting up clearly to put Eddie Alvarez on the big screen during a timeout to announce that he's there and i am sitting right behind Eddie Alvarez so i tell Weber Hey, let's switch seats so you can get the hinky shirt on the screen while Eddie Alvarez is on the screen. So we got a picture of it. He gets it clear, but the camera, as Weber is showing his T-shirt behind him, closes in so close on Eddie Alvarez that you couldn't even see Eddie Alvarez anymore just to get Weber out of the shot. Like So then the other thing I, I wanted to explain is sitting to the, the right of us was um, – was a few Philadelphia Eagles um, to the right of us and in front oh. of us. So there was that was that Connor Barwin and uh, M Night Shyamalan. No, they were on the other side. Um, they, they what, were, that, what an attendees list! Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. M Night Shyamalan, Mike Weber, um, Eddie Alvarez. So there were a few other Eagles. Connor Barwin went with M Night Shyamalan, who we saw afterwards, by the way. But. Um, uh, but to the right of us were Brandon Brooks, Benny Logan, a couple other Eagles. And Weber points out to me earlier, and I, I hadn't looked over, but it didn't seem weird to me But because he's he's at Sixers games sometimes. But Weber says, Mike Trout is over there. I actually met Mike Trout at a Sixers game before, so I, it seemed reasonable to me that he could be there. And Weber is sort of like bragging that Mike Trout follows him on Twitter. And he wasn't even following Mike Trout until um, Mike Trout followed him or whatever. And at a certain point, I look over, and I, I think they were yelling at Mike Trout. And I looked at him, and I said, guys, that's Zach Ertz. <laughs> that's not, <laughs> it wasn't Mike Trout. Weird. They're yelling at him. Uh, so that was it. So I would say that was the most out of control I've ever seen a – like Person. it was – yeah, yeah. I mean – and I will tell you that you should um, be really – uh, excited to know that that entire game, it felt like the crowd was um, like it was like the lottery party. I mean, it was it would there is the contingent of like of our people at that game was. Let me let me ask unreal. you this because yeah. there there were people with varying reports of it. If they were saying trust the process or let's go process. No, they were saying trust the process. That's what I thought. Yeah. But Rich and Derek said let's go we're saying let's go process and I was like I feel like that no who would say that? What a yeah. weird thing to say. Yeah, and well I would say as well that they were sort of the the chants were originating from different places. So and and when you're at um Press is, is like really one side of the building. So it's possible they could have heard a packet mm -hmm. of people saying that somewhere, but it was definitely trust the process everywhere. Um, and that was, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it, I, 
I feel like we've said this a bunch of times that at certain moments have been the like the achieving moment of the process. But Joel Embiid, as a guy who is going by the process, playing and dominating, by the way, Stephen Adams, as chance of trust the process rained down that, that we did not start, that you and I did not start in a sold-out Wells Fargo Center, was, <laughs> was a pretty, uh, I felt accomplished, I'll put it that way. I, it, it felt pretty good to watch. Uh-huh. So, not bad. Yeah. So do we talk about the actual game or do we wait for Pablo to do that? What do you well, think? Well, I mean, we can start. So Pablo is is not, is not, is not like I don't he hasn't uh, accepted my um my Skype request yet. So to me that means he's not online yet. So we can start sure. and then once he signs on, I'll uh, I'll get him and he can join in. How about that? Yeah. It was um so again, this is the frustrating thing about living on the West Coast is that the game starts when I'm at work and I'm oh, not yeah. allowed to be watching the game in the writer's room. So it's very frustrating because I'm risking my well-being, my job, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to sneakily watch the game in meetings. It's a bad idea. It's a really, really bad idea. I was it's in a like, meeting for I was in a meeting for my episode with like the director and the, the, a couple of the executive producers, and I'm just like, like uh, it's the script, which is like 30 pages, and I have my phone like up against it, like holding, trying to hold, trying to hold it normally, trying to hold like a like a small packet with like a clunky phone, like holding it straight <laughs> and like acting like it's like it's nothing. Uh, a couple of times. Just like visibly like groaning when Embiid does stuff, it was I'm sure I'm sure they knew what I was doing, or at least were confused by it. Uh, it. It's sort of like what Cubs fans across the country are understandably doing during the World Series. You're doing for a regular season game for a team who has lost more games over a span of three years than any team in history has. So yeah, I don't see the difference. Yeah. I don't see the difference. Okay. I. It was it was in the building. The excitement was um, was pretty undeniable. And yeah, talk talk me through that. How that? What, what was what were some things? Obviously, the the Weber stuff and the yelling. But yeah, what were some things that uh, that you felt there? Well, I mean, the lead up to it. I mean, the hour or so before the game was pretty awesome because of the number of people I ran into um, just standing there at the game who were like who were as excited as you and I would be, you know, like a lot of conversations about, you know, even if nothing else ever happens with him, like, you know, we have tonight, you know, he's playing, he's about to play. And I would say that the, um, you know, it was awesome then to see when they introduced, it was awesome that it was sold out. It was awesome to see when they introduced him that they introduced him last and he got, such an enormous ovation and you yeah. could see on his face like he was you could see how excited he was and i've said a, a bunch of times over the last you know several weeks how how good we all feel for him you know we feel good for us but we sure. also mostly feel good for him because he gets to go through this and then uh you know his first 5 minutes on the court were um were unbelievable and and every time he would do something it was like, it was like, all right, 
you know how that when the 12th man, uh, you know, the Scalabrini moment, when the guy gets in the game and everybody, like the crowd goes nuts because you're just dying for that guy to shoot and make a shot. Um, you know, like the sarcastic cheer at the end of the game when that happens. It was like the real version of that every time, like the non-sarcastic version of that every time Embiid did anything. So from him shooting that first three, his first shot was the three, right? It was a three that he missed um, to that the dream shake from the free throw line, which is absurd anyway, to I would say the peak moment for me, the the two most amazing moments were him hitting the three and the block, that first block on Westbrook, where he he looked so huge and came out of nowhere to block that shot was, and then sort of leading the break, it was um, it was amazing, and it, it was funny when they pulled him out. Uh, Mike Preston was sitting right in front of me, and the crowd was going crazy as Embiid d- does all this, and they get out to this big lead, and then they they take the first time out, and Embiid comes out. And uh, Preston jokes to me, he's like, all right, see you again in second quarter. And it was like, you know, there's eight minutes left in the first quarter and everybody's getting so riled up for everything that he does. But the majority of the game does not contain Joel Embiid, which was sort of a bummer. So uh-huh. uh, it was and then I would say the beginning of the fourth quarter when we're up six or whatever it is. And Ange and I lean over to each other and we both go, all right, so how do we lose this one? <laughs> because, you know, there were, there were parts of the game that seemed so familiar to so many games that we've played. Oh, that this, I'm sorry, yeah. I, keep, I keep weeing it. But so many games that the Sixers have played over the last three years. Hey, man, you can weigh it. Yeah, okay, fine. It, they, they were so, they, it was so familiar. Like, I knew they were going to lose. There was no way they weren't going to lose. Now, if they hit a big shot, we agreed that it was going to be Dario that hit the big shot. But it was really Dario that Dario and Gerald Henderson, I think, that, um, that both, uh, I don't know, missed, missed the big shots to sort of cost them the game on some level. But um, it, was a, it was a really exciting game to be at. The unfortunate thing was he, having that... Um, I'm sort of over that. Uh, we, we had Embiid and we had, you know, obviously down the stretch, he was, Stephen Adams could do nothing with him, could do nothing yeah. with him. I mean, the, the, you know, he was doing something that, that Okafor had trouble doing through the year last year was getting position down low against Stephen Adams. He was getting position four feet away from the hoop. You know, I mean, he, they could do nothing. He's, with him. he's so much bigger than Stephen Adams. I and, love Stephen Adams. He's yeah. great in Really, every way, but he he can't do anything about Embiid. Embiid's first game of his career after not playing basketball for I I, I don't know the exact time, how many months and days, but like almost two and a half years, right? Yeah, yeah. He just like dominated him to some extent. Like, just I mean, he obviously didn't shoot that well, but he he got wherever he wanted, and that's it's really disgusting how good he is it's it it feels you know when you're watching baseball and like your team or i guess you could say this about basketball too it's like good things him just being there is such a good thing it feels like every time somebody gets up it's like another double and it's like how how long can this be sustained yeah it's like imagining like a play a series of plays where the sixers just continue to hit threes it's it feels like one of those things that we're moments away from it being over and never seeing it again. So I'm just like 
clawing and reaching and trying to grab for every good moment. Yeah. And I, I, I just – I can't believe it's real. I can't believe it's real. I can't believe yeah. he's really playing basketball for the Sixers as much as we said for uh, all this time that you know they're being patient. They're doing the right stuff for him. They're trying to you know make sure that his foot's ready so that the rest of his career is a success. Obviously – He's only played in preseason in one game, so who knows if that actually worked. But just I, the year of Bynum really conditioned us, or at least yeah. me, to be like everything is hopeless all the time. Yeah, and, and it's not. It seems like it, it's not. Yeah, it seems like it seems like it's not. Uh, I I'm blown away by it. It's it, and he. A, uh, him being so good so quickly. I mean, I, you really. I I I didn't watch it on TV. I watched it live. But it was the fact that he was that un un and unguardable in his first game. I mean, Stephen Adams is a monster. Is a really yeah. big person and just could do nothing with him. Um, so Pablo is uh, Pablo's here. You want to talk to Pablo? Let's do it. We've been avoiding the game, so we can wait for Pablo. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for coming on. Uh, this is. I feel like we've. Um, I Are we know. on? Is this live? Are we doing this live now? Yeah, we're this live. This? We'll yeah. do Pablo, it live. We're doing it's great it live. Great to meet you, Pablo. This is the first time Likewise. we've talked as humans. Likewise, I've been looking forward to this moment. Although ten months of time elapsing between the article and this moment may suggest otherwise. Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know the. Um, I, I had a bunch of things I wanted to talk about, but it's funny to see um, – I don't know. It's funny to look back and obviously I, I think your piece that you wrote on the Sixers and all that stuff was the first meaningful long piece on any of this by a national writer. But uh, your piece having that trust the process quote and then you holding up the T-shirt on around the horn and then – all of it I was just talking to Mike, all of it coming down to Joel Embiid calling himself the process at the season opener as uh chance round rained down from the uh rafters trust the process at the Sixers home game. Uh it all feels like it it was a it, what a funny, you know, confluence of events to get there. I mean, this is why I got into sports journalism. And I say <laughs> that I say that only half facetiously because to be honest, like Joel Embiid calling himself the process was was obviously so satisfying um, cosmically, <laughs> just cosmically. Like, wow, totally. the universe can reward all of us who have been watching a TV show essentially that no one else liked for this long. And now the TV show is awesome. Like, that's how I felt about Joel Embiid buying into the process and then that debut, which we can talk about. Um, but the other part is, like, I, I say that I got into sports journalism because of this. Because that arena, man, like that's crazy. I love that that is a place where something like this can happen, where a Tony Roten quote, Tony, I mean, I, I don't even know if he's aware of, of how much of an impact he's had on all of our lives, but him saying, they tell us every game, every day, trust the process, like that going to this moment justifies so much of the time that I spent purely trying to convince people that guys this is an entertaining story that's worth thinking about let alone like appreciating or valuing so for me it was just like oh this is so this is the best of sports to me yeah it's a um 
I was telling Mike that that before the game, the weirdest thing for, and I've gone to a lot. Of, I'm a season ticket holder, so I go. I've gone to a lot of Sixers games over the last, you know, um, three years during all of this. But before the game, there was such an obvious, like, a, a, such a large part of the crowd was these sorts of people were the sorts of people like you and me and Mike who who bought in the whole time that it was so it was so amazing to see that it wasn't a the the that cult that small group of people who were buying in like eventually got much much bigger than i think any of us had ever imagined and it it it, it was a large part of that crowd there on wednesday night were, were there people there that were like ah finally hinky's gone that fraud like was it were some of those guys that were like actively like finally they can be playing now? Uh, those guys. Well, those people aren't all that vocal, I guess. Or at least on site. That's not what I was amazed by was the number of people who were who were bought in tight people, um, and that how much that has grown over over time too. Well, so. it, it it seems like look in in defense of various hypothetical critics we may be reference here referencing here like there was look this human face was missing fundamentally a national human face Joel Embiid is that face and and the fact that that guy is he's always been the key to this story to this television show um in so many different ways but for me like just personally and then we can move on like I I've abdicated so many of my actual uh ancestral rooting interests because my job uh, of sports journalist kind of erodes all of that away from you. I, I have basically substituted all of those teams. I'm from New York, so the Knicks, the Yankees, uh, those teams I, I follow and enjoy, but I have substituted them out for just pure self-interest. And so for me, as for you guys, I felt like a stockholder. Like, oh, some amount of like shame, personal shame, is attached to the story. So add that element to all of the kind of I would say universal qualities that makes the story good, and yeah, it's it's pretty fun as of one game in. Let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. Would you would you say that the Sixers are your favorite team, like the, <laughs> the team that you're rooting for the most? I think publicly. I mean, I don't even have to answer that myself because I would say yes to that. But the real test is like, what do people who may uh, bother or insult me on Twitter think? And I think, yeah, I'm pretty closely associated, so I, I have to accept that mantle. <laughs> Well, those people matter the most, the the insulters on Twitter. Of course. It's all about them. Well, so let me – if we could go back for a minute and just ask about when you wrote the piece initially um, and what you learned and, and what you wrote about. If you had – looking back on it, if you had to guess um, how it would end – I mean obviously there are so many different – possible outcomes but would you have guessed that it would have ended for hinky before he saw it through would that have been your your um your guess if you had to at the time so one of the things uh that happened when i was reporting the story was explicitly uh at that point like uh, uh, it wasn't meant for the story and i don't think i'm breaking anyone's anonymous journalistic trust when I point this out, but one of the discussions that kept on cropping up around Sam and his mentality and the things that make him both a brilliant and an extreme person, one of those things that kept cropping up was uh, a discussion of career mortality. Like Sam would talk to friends and people that he truly trusted about how he didn't think he was going to make it through the end of this experiment. 
Um, mm-hmm. That was something that he mused about uh, fairly actively to people that he knew in his life. Um, to me, that seemed at the time like uh, that seems, you know, like a neuroticism because he is a highly neurotic uh, and, and, and really hardworking guy. Um, but I mean, the fact that it ended the way it did, when it happened, Sam, you know, the letter and all of that, which is just so, it just happened so perfectly, obviously. But it also, from a more macro perspective, it happened perfectly. Um, I don't know if there's a more fun version of the story. I mean, again, this is where we diverge, by the way. So I'm going to take the path of like, what is the most cinematic version of the story? Sure. Um, and you're going to take the path of, man, I want the 76ers to be good. And that's the right path for you guys to take. Um, but for me, like, this is just the drama of this just became so absurdly cinematic. Um, and I think the fact that Sam is this Obi-Wan Kenobi figure whose force ghost is kind of like looming around the arena um, and inspiring people like that to me um, is even more perfect because ultimately the story is about some kind of futility um, and how nothing we, basically this is why we can't have nice things in sports on some level and, and Sam losing his job because some confluence of of the league and some confluence of public pressure and so forth like that to me was yeah it, it makes sense that Sam Hinkie is now a messiah type character well and and what it does for the story and it's funny you say that because the Sixers are the I like I work in sports radio in Philadelphia so so for most times with sports the the most interesting thing to me when you work in sports this much is that the cheering thing sort of goes away because what I'm looking for is storylines but the Sixers are the last sort of bastion of of sure. pure uh, cheering that I have, but as far as the story, if you're talking about the the hinky thing in regard to the Sixers, him leaving before it's seen through is sort of like the end of a horror movie where you don't know if the killer is dead yet or not. So, <laughs> so the the um the like what happens afterward, like we get to argue now because there's no answer of what he did really because um because people who thought that it was wrong even right. if this all works out will say that it was because he was gone that it worked out we have this argument for the the, the rest of time yeah. i don't know uh let's i'm just really excited about this the team and i think i keep talking i talked to uh uh david roth of vice uh yes today and it was like there's there's so much. It's hard to talk about all the things that there is to talk about. I don't I don't think that there. I think you'll need like a six part miniseries, like OJ esque, to fully <laughs> dive into how I'm much. Ready. When ready it's for it. Pablo, I'm so fucking ready for this, man. Let's just <laughs> it, do it. It's 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 about a lot of like huge and not just huge ideas, but but the stuff that actually makes sports as sports interesting. Um, and again, this is me and my, uh, again, eroded and at this point desensitized uh, sports journalist, sports gas bag brain. But a lot of the stuff I find interesting about sports actually is the outside world invading into sports. Totally. Um, and, and this has some people, of that. Yeah. Why do this people some give of that? But, but in terms of like the true fundamentals of like why this story is controversial and has two sides to it that are legitimately interesting, like the process versus results concept is a concept that seems and feels native to sports. And so it's actually one of those arguments that seems not just intellectually enriching, but, but actually fun to argue about because there is this, this fundamental concept of what are we here for um, in sports that 
because sports is a metaphor for the outside world, actually in some ways is as big as the world surrounding it. So it feels important to me, I guess, is what I'm saying, even though it's obviously something that can be hyper-specific and so, so uh, you know, so foreboding to a non-NBA nerd to begin to contemplate. There are some big picture stuff that everybody should find interesting. Let's take a break from Pablo to talk about our sponsor, L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, the only sponsor of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast and the only place in the world that you should be going to get an engagement ring because it is the only jeweler in the entire planet who trusts the process and is our friend. Both of those things. Some other jewelers might have one or the other, but LL is the only one to have both. Um, look, here's what I want you to do. If you're going to get an engagement ring with LL Pavorsky Jewelers, obviously you can stop in and see LL whenever you want at 707 Chestnut. But if you're going to get an engagement ring, you should touch base first so he can clear out the schedule for you, so he can find out what your price range is, what you're looking at, and so he can have everything to show you when you go in. You can um, set up that appointment by simply – you could tweet LL Pavorsky, couldn't they? They could tweet LL Pavorsky at LL Pavorsky. You tweet- him. You could tweet him. You could send him an email from llpavorsky.com. You could uh, stop in the shop and make an appointment. Or you could call him at, um, what is it, 215, hold on, I don't have it, 215-627-2252. And as the only sponsor of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, LL Pavorsky makes generous donations to Rain and the Alzheimer's Association of the Delaware Valley. LL Pavorsky Jewelers. Like Joel Embiid, LL learned how to be a jeweler by watching white people's jumpers. <laughs> All right, now back to Pablo. Okay, I, it's going to take me forever to put this together. All right. All right, Tia. L- let me ask you something, I guess, in relation to that, because your job with ESPN, has, you mentioned the, the gas bag thing, and then, and then you write these. So you write these long pieces for ESPN, the magazine, from the Hinky thing to the, the Josh Richardson thing that just came out, the Jeremy Lin thing, like really well thought out. Uh, Tyler sure. Johnson piece, although I appreciate Tyler Johnson, yes, I appreciate that you have the NBA yeah. nerdery to <laughs> confuse one obscure Heat player for yeah. another obscure I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. Uh, uh, I do that with him all the time for some reason. Anyway, um, uh, and by the way, the moment where he – like I – the the way that it was written and the way like his quote like him legitimately throwing up when uh, when he found out about the money is a really like uh, I- incredible moment I think but so there's these long things that you do and then of course there's around the horn which is a a more classic um, sports talk radio on TV everybody you know argue mm-hmm. um, in very short bursts H- how does it work <laughs> for your brain I guess. Uh, operating on the, all of those different levels, and I guess is it frustrating for you to um, to operate in such an in depth level with how you write, but then operate in such a an opposite level of that? And then, of course, what you do with Levitard, I guess, is sort of in the middle of all of it. So, how do you, how does your brain operate through all those different levels of how you do what you do? Uh, it operates fairly uh, schizophrenically, I think. Um, I, I don't think you're wrong insofar as uh, the the amount of time that I enjoy in a perfect world, absent any of the programming or page limit restrictions, as you are finding out, because I'm winding up to every answer that I give you, which Dan Levitard <laughs> loves to make fun of me for. Like I like to roam around, right? So I right. that's my natural conversational kind of pace. Um, so around the horn, though, trains me to think and become a more uh, economical 
writer in some senses. Like I think in shorter bursts um, when I'm on that show, obviously, and it scratches something of an itch that I have, which is the itch of being a columnist, which I never was uh, because I am writing these feature stories. And the best feature stories to me that I've been doing lately have been ones that involve a bigger idea that stems from kind of an essay-ish place. So whatever the story really is about on the surface, and then there's the second level, which I hope people have maybe not thought about as much. And that was true of Tyler Johnson and kind of what a marketplace means and how we reward people in that marketplace and how we judge people in sports versus other industries to whatever Dwayne Wade and LeBron James's friendship being about, uh, you know, owner labor dynamics in professional sports and loyalty and all that stuff, um, which is all to say that I don't get to do the, the full on essay column stuff as often as I'd like. So doing around the horn or PTI or whatever else, um, it gives me the itch and it gives me the, uh, the uh, you know, incentive to like, oh, right, there's a skill set here to providing opinions and sharpening opinions that, that I think is a challenge. Like, I think there are lots of people out there who understandably may watch a show like First Take and think, oh, Stephen A. Smith, I agree with nothing that he says. Um, and I'm a reasonable, right-minded human being. And maybe that's true. Uh, but in terms of like the entertainment metric of like this person is saying something and articulating something in a way that makes me want to listen to him um that's a skill set that the print world does not really tune you into and now my brain is kind of schizophrenically tuned into both do you think i i guess it's I think if you were to ask one person whether uh, sports media and how we talk about things is going in a positive way, they would say yes. And another, and they would point to um, things like what you write, the existence of Grantland ever, um, and the the you know, and podcasts and all that stuff. And they would be really positive on it. And then you could find somebody else that says, "Well, no, the only thing that's popular is um, Skip Bayless arguing with somebody or Stephen A. Smith arguing with somebody." Do you see all of this going in a way that you find uh, intriguing and interesting and positive or or negative or both? I, I just whenever I think of the sports media economy, um, I think there's always going to be a market for what maybe quote unquote traditional sports radio school of thought programming. Like that's just fundamental to what sports is as a cultural product. People arguing and feeling passionately about sports topics that are fundamental to them. And maybe that verges in the direction of meatheadedness. Um, and that's, that's fine. I mean, that's part of, again, look, I'm not, my, my mission in sports, and I've been thinking existentially about this, so this may be a far bigger answer than you want. But my whole thing here is not to, uh, it's not to quote unquote, and I'm going to say this condescendingly and self-parodyingly, but I'm not here to civilize sports culture. Like, that's not my goal. My goal, insofar as I can do what I want to do, is to keep doing what I want to do um, and hopefully find an audience that is finding that enjoyable. Um, so I kind of want other people on the other side of the aisle. Um, one of the things that's interesting about sports versus politics is that I can say that in sports with far more moral uh, confidence. Like, I don't, I don't fear the negative consequences of meatheadedness in the main. I think there are places where it gets toxic, and we all know those Twitter eggs that take it really toxically. But if people don't like what I do, that's fine. And, and didn't like Grantland, that's fine. And don't like long-form journalism, that's fine. Um, and don't like people talking about process and results, that is also fine. Um, but I think it's important to note that those people are always going to be around. And also, 
I want to be, and this is where I will be transparently self-interested, like I kind of like being subversive. I like kind of having a little bit of, uh, of, of pushback when someone sees a take that I may have as like overly intellectual or highfalutin. Um, and it's not because I try to be those things. It's simply because like, oh, I, I'm glad that I get to be somewhat subversive. And I always, yeah, and I always, I always think, I always think about, you know, uh, you know, there are examples of, of just when you leave the machine of ESPN, when you leave the Borg, um, and the sports media landscape and ESPN can be stand-ins here for each other too. If you were to leave and eliminate some of those, uh, some of those people on the other side of the aisle, like being on my side isn't as fun, honestly. Like, the Sixers story is so fun because there's another side to argue with. I don't know if I would have enjoyed just basically convincing everybody that process is more important than results. And everyone was like, oh, okay, I get it. And we moved on with our lives. That's not as fun to me. And so maybe there's a little bit of like, yeah, I'm a little bit of the joker in sports media too if that's kind of my perspective I'm now realizing. But isn't there more like – and we, we're getting into the broad philosophical elements, which I love. But isn't there more of like there, there is welcome dissent – there is reasoned argument, and then there is straight dismissive, hot takery. Yes, that that's just like not helpful or contributing anything to the conversation. And I think that's where in the in the in the both sidesness of the landscape socially and in, in in every avenue, there's like some people are just wrong and dismissive, and there's other people that are like, well, hey, here's a reasoned argument why I don't think they should have traded KJ McDaniel's. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about that. But then there's like, I don't know anybody on their team. They're losing their, their – it's a Ponzi scheme. And I think that that's – I think that there's levels to that and one should be shamed. Yes. Oh, no, to- totally. You can, I mean, look, I, I, I am someone who does shame those people from time to time. And I think the reason – I guess this is maybe sounding the most condescending version of itself now that I – It's the right audience. It's the right <laughs> audience. But basically, it. like, I think – Taking a living example of a terrible argument and deconstructing it has value. Um, so even the worst guy who has the worst take, the Sixers are a Ponzi scheme, which may be, where's that rank in your opinion? Like a four on the one to ten? Like, <laughs> I don't know, like on the, on the hot taking is terribleness scale. Like that's, that's quite bad, but it could get worse. Well, uh, <laughs> the, yeah, like the, the Sam Hinkie is losing so his job, so to keep his job stability and doesn't actually care about winning ever. Yeah, that, right. I mean, that's yeah. like, that's one, I think. Yes, and that's terrible. It's terrible for so many reasons. And I think everybody listening to this podcast understands why. Um, and him leaving this job is obviously the greatest validation that that was always a bad argument. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but, you know, the fact that that exists and we could, like, break it down and show why it's wrong. And this is, and this is the – and I guess this is back to, like, the wide-rangingly philosophical thing. But I find that we in a bubble of, like, relatively thoughtful people may underestimate how many people have that thought. Um, and so it becomes a matter of, like, practical, practical um, reality, right? Like – I think we can always condemn those people and that's good. Like on that on the level of like substance and that is good. But um so many people I think whether if that's a four we can get to the level of like, you know, um players are all lazy. Right? Like that would be like a 9 maybe. Mm-hmm. All of them are lazy. Um that maybe is a 9 or an 8. 
maybe racism is a 10, so we should, calib- we should recalibrate this later. There should be a blog post <laughs> about this. Um, but basically, if that's like an 8 or a 9, like, you know, that's something that if a lot of people actually feel it, um, it is worth engaging with and it is worth, um, yes, wishing away, but also being glad that it exists on some level so that we can deconstruct it for others to learn from. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That sounded really, really condescending. No, I well, it, I, I think, too, the, the, the hard part about um, having any depth to your opinion or not uh, – let's say you have a take on this that in, in our view is – let's say whether, whether right or wrong is thoughtful, um, that when you present that thought, people will automatically just put you on one side in one camp or the other. So it's almost like I, I, sometimes that the, uh, the more thoughtful uh, version of what you think is wasted and lost on most people anyway. So I think a lot of the people who are going full hot take on it are just cutting right to the chase on how they will, uh, how they will be perceived anyway. You know, it just yeah. it seems more effective on some level. And they're missing out because the second and third level details in this story, like the fact that Sam Hinkie is this obsessive workaholic, which you would miss if you only stayed at the surface and stayed with the Ponzi scheme to take. You miss the take, which is actually more fascinating, which is that this man is heroically heroically doomed insofar as he is neurotic and anxious and so obsessed with winning. Like, that is the more interesting Sam Hinkie, the guy who's obsessed with winning, not the guy who's Ponzi scheming because he doesn't care about it. Like, that's the real story. And that's, again, the Sixers story is a great example of, like, if you read this stuff and think about it, you'll come out with a more interesting version of the hot take you may have if you had a hot take in the first place. Yes, but the people that are on the other side are anti-thought. I mean, yes, oftentimes. Oftentimes anti-thought. I mean, the, the idea that Hinky doesn't treat players as people, and then you read the stuff about him and Evan Turner driving to the airport together and telling himself, and then him being in a small room with Joel Embiid when he finds out his brother died. Like, he, he gave a shit about these guys. He gave right. a shit about the job. And the, fa- and the people just dismissing it as, like, he's this robotic computer asshole that just wants to lose games intentionally and never succeed it's just ludicrous and those people should be catapulted out of the city (laughs) (laughs) and and there's remember the uh, my favorite of those is the unprompted kyle lowry character evaluation slash linkedin endorsement of sam hinkey he was like yeah sam was a human being who i like and i'm glad i met him and i hope to remain friendly with him it's kind of like (laughs) oh cool do do you how do you think I, it's, it's sort of impossible to um, to know, but how do you think this off season would have gone? What what do you think the team would have done differently? Uh, this is sort of a minutia Sixers question, but um, uh, what do you think they would have done differently if this had never happened? If if uh, Sam had never left, if Colangelo hadn't showed up, do you think he would have handled it differently than Brian Colangelo did? I, this is my favorite thought experiment because. It ends, the experiment ends with me actually not knowing what Sam would have done. And that's because I respect the complexity of what happened this offseason. The whole idea that the CBA demanded a change that first the public was not ready for, clearly. Salaries and all of that had such such sticker shock for NBA fans. Um, That tells you something about how NBA teams were acting simply because I have learned that it is a mistake to think that NBA executives uh, 
team officials are so different and so much further ahead in the public on stuff like this. Ultimately, these guys are reading a lot of the same stories we are. They're talking to a lot of the same people that we in the sports media are. And the thing about Sam, which was fun, was that he did not do any of that Um, explicitly. I mean, he was aggressively anti-press because he didn't want to give away what he perceived as even the most marginal advantage. So I say all of that to point out that Sam would have been planning something that others were not. Now, I don't know how radical that would have been. Obviously, the thing that he had was what I assume would have been the most cap space available at a time when players cost more than they ever have. So the question then you ask yourself is, okay, would Sam Hinkie have gone for someone who wasn't part of a team that was still rebuilding? Would he have gone for a good player, in other words? Would he have gone for one of those guys? Um, I don't know that he would have. And I say that just because, like, you guys have, I'm sure, done this thought experiment. Like, who are the players where you were like, hmm, I wish we could have tried to make a move for that guy in the free agent market? I don't know if there was someone who was obvious. Was there? No, I mean, you saw Brooklyn do a lot of that with restricted free agency. And and come up mostly empty. So I think Sam would have done something transactional, which is to say a trade, which is to say dealing with the movement of picks and the movement of, of, of salary. But again, like that is, that is one of those things where this offseason was so built for him because he was the one guy I would have had total – other people did obviously too – Brooklyn obviously has a very smart front office. Um, Houston, where Sam came from, obviously they're aware of it. A lot of teams ended up being aware of it by the time, um, you know, by the time certainly it wasn't too late. But I think Sam would have been made for this, made for the accounting nature of it, made for the arcane nature of the rules here. They were CBA um, scholars. They were CBA scholars. And, And that would have done something in terms of like, he would have been playing chess. That's the thing. Like he would have been playing chess. And other teams have been, but he was the most obsessive at it. And I would have loved to see what that would have involved. I don't think it would have been that different, honestly. I know that, uh, you know, I, I really like the Sergio signing. I think the Gerald Henderson and Jared Bayless signings were fine. Maybe a little uninspired, but fine. But I think that he would have done the same thing. I think it would have been, I mean, we obviously like the draft. I think maybe he would have done a little bit more action moving around the draft, but Right. I, I don't think it would have been that different. I think he would have been engaged in a lot of things. I think maybe he would have tried to move Nerlens or Jaleel sooner than Colangelo did. I mean, naturally, Colangelo coming into a new job, wanting to get his bearings, takes like, you know, it takes some time for him to get going in terms of n- knowing the personnel, and maybe he wouldn't be just just any transition of power takes some time to like get everybody settled. But I think that's the only thing is that. Some Nerlens or Jaleel Tread, I think, I think would be would have happened. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think, I think that's right. I, th- I think the the talent moving would have been right. Nerlens would have been the, the obvious name there. And yeah, the only reason I say like it would have been weird is because I just have to assume that he had a plan for this summer. Totally. And maybe the plan was to ultimately stay pat, and that's obviously on the table. But man, I just would have liked to see. <laughs> I would have liked to see how he would have dealt with it because he was made for it. Um, yeah. You think he'll run a team again, right? I mean, I would. I, I think that you don't think his. You, you would know better than I. Um, just, I, I guess, the perception of him around the league. But I, I have to believe that there aren't enough great GMs in which he wouldn't get another shot. The rumors have been so far that he's been offered not head 
general manager jobs, but high level front office jobs. Yeah. Um, and that that's been swirling around and and ultimately I do think he will. I don't know how long it's going to take. I think one thing that's going to absolutely affect that because the NBA, like any professional sports organization, is fundamentally risk averse and public pressure sensitive. So if the Sixers end up being a story that vindicates him, which is, again, weird because all it's really doing is putting Joel Embiid on the floor and kind of seeing now what Joel Embiid has always been. Um, for a lot of people, like that's the reason why they may think the Sixers are a promising franchise now. That would absolutely affect this. Um, so I think Sam is also watching this team with vested interest because it's weird, right? Like it's weird. You have all of this detail. You have, and this has always been the story with the Sixers to me. You have his transaction history. You know all of the things he has done. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to grade his tenure, you can grade the transactions. Um, again, if you step behind the veil and think of process before results, like this is a record that is immediately available for scrutiny, and it should not matter what Joel Embiid becomes. But I will say. The one thing that everybody has said, and even some people within the Sixers have said since the beginning when I was doing that story, was we'll find out if Sam can scout. Yeah, yeah. And did you believe Joel Embiid was, was the guy? And that's the, one, that's the one domino with Sam where, okay, now even people who were on his side, they have more confidence in his ability to evaluate basketball. And he is, he is very, when he talks about, because he doesn't, nobody knows what he thinks aside from who he picks. I mean, I'm sure people in Houston do. Because he was when he's, you can't like keep secrets to yourself when you're not the boss. But <laughs> as as the head of in, in Philadelphia, he like just didn't tell people what he thought. He was always like, "Well, what do you think? Well, who do you, what do you think about this guy?" And it was just always he's just accumulating information and different people's opinions and just sorting it out himself. And it and it it never came out in the media, and it never came out. It only came out via his transaction history. So I think if you look at his transaction history, that is the best like document for finding out what value system in terms of player scouting Sam Hinkie holds the closest to his to himself. And the question then becomes how many people in the NBA in terms of those who hire general managers, whether that's owners, whether that's whatever president of whatever title any team might have, how many of those people are actually reading transaction histories? Right. You know, and, th- and that's where I think the demystification of how pro sports works is so useful to me, talking to more people around it. Like, there are competent people, there are incompetent people, but let's not assume that these teams are all plugged into, like, this weird cerebro X-Men matrix where they have access to all of the stuff that people on the outside do not. Oftentimes, they're evaluating and watching basketball fan like a very dedicated person but probably not as obsessive as the most obsessive basketball blogger that you know like that's just a reality a lot of the times in terms of how many people are really digging into the granular history of all of the second round picks sam hinkie has been flipping you know i i do think too uh much like um it's funny we had chip kelly and sam hinkie at the same time in philadelphia and it felt like we were on some verge of going from what is considered like a backwards town to all of a sudden having all of the smart guys at once um and i think both guys showed um showed some uh well i mean chip kelly i think more than sam hinkie but showed a 
something that they needed to change, you know, like a, uh, they, they should have learned something from themselves being here. It doesn't seem like Kelly did, but it'll be interesting to see when Hinky gets his next shot that if you do, I know he doesn't care about the media, but if you do satiate them a little bit, you can buy yourself more time. Or oh, he, he cares. You know, he yeah. cares now, man. Yeah. He cares now. I mean, look at him, look at him on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I just mean, look at him on Twitter because I'm looking at his, Twitter account right now. He's follow, He's tweeted, you know, ten times. It's yeah. that ten part uh, <laughs> announcement. Uh, but he's following six hundred and fifty nine people. Yeah. Sam Hinkie is lurking, man. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. is lurking. He follows me. I know that. He's lurking. He's watching. I mean, he is sensitive now to this world because it was it was his undoing, and that's a rational, obsessive person's response. So it makes sense. He may be listening to this, Sam. If you're there, hello. Yeah, uh, he, does, he does consume a lot of. He does read a ton. He always he, he's always read and always take. He really just like takes in information from all these different yeah. sources and stuff. But it was just a matter of whether he spits it out or not. And I think that was what undid him in Philadelphia was his unwillingness to spit it out and talk talk about. That's right. What he thinks. That's right. And I think he's going to do that differently the next time he has to. And and you saw that incidentally towards the final weeks of his tenure when, you know, it maybe should have been suspicious when I think he gave Jordan Brenner, a colleague of mine at ESPN, he, he sat down with him and talked to him for a long piece that never would have happened um, at another time in his tenure. But I yeah. think he felt the doors closing. The, and that's the, the Zach Lowe podcast, too. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Zach's podcast. Right. Yeah. That was that yeah. was as good an example as any. And yeah. those were things that he would not he would not and did not do uh, any earlier. Um, well, I mean, before we get cut off again, I, I guess finally I would I, I guess in this I, I, I would like to say thank you um, because uh, we <laughs> and I know I know it sounds crazy, but we uh, it, we were I don't know. It, it was really nice to have somebody uh, with a platform like yours to sort of jump on our team, not only write what you wrote, which was really interesting, not not just because we we found like we agreed with it, there is some confirmation bias there, but it was interesting, but you like sort of carrying the flag in a national sense for us and showing our stupid, I know it seems small, but showing our stupid t-shirt on TV the night of that lottery was awesome. Um, and really, uh, I thought was a, you know, we, we felt like we had somebody, we had an embedded person <laughs> in the national media. And it's nice to know that there was somebody there who was part of it. So I guess just thanks. You're like a hero to the, 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 <laughs> the, the process uh, followers. So I think it, it was really cool of you to do that. Um, you are genuinely welcome because one of the fun parts about this is that you guys, and I, this is where I'm going to sound now like the biggest, um, apologist for your side of the aisle, but like you guys are on the right side of history. Like that's one of the fun things about this for me is that again, if maybe if everybody agreed, it would be a different, more sane, less stressful time to be a Sixers fan, uh, in the way that you guys are Sixers fans. But for me, it's kind of fun being the guy who is like standing up for rationality and evidence <laughs> and data and like logic. And once you actually read the stuff in the story, you find out that one of the hidden characters in this entire saga has been the league, has been the NBA. Yeah. And it's funny how we have villainized some people involved in this story arc. Sam Hinkie was a villain. 
Uh, the Sixers front office or the ownership group was a villain for empowering him. But the people who made the game, the people who made the rules, the people who refused to change the rules, um, those people evade, evade public scrutiny, um, which is the story also of just fans interacting with sports storylines. But the NBA and the league and Adam Silver and the pressure they put on, this story, putting their thumbs all over the scale, um, that to me was was so undercovered and so interesting um, how a league yeah. protects itself and responds to the public pressure preemptively at times. Um, and so one of the fun things about the story in terms of feeling righteous and on the right side of history was that it did kind of seem like a political uprising. Like this was not okay to exist. Um, and, and I was always baffled as to why it couldn't. Um, or at the very least, if it couldn't, then who we should blame for the reasons why we are uncomfortable with it. And that has never been, to me, Sam Hinkie. That has been the people who run the game. Yeah, it's, it was a little Hunger Gamesy in a way. Where it's it like, oh, these people are going too far into this direction. Let's bring them back. Let's like fire a cannon, fire a Colangelo <laughs> cannon at them and make them turn around and come back. Well, <laughs> Sam Hinkie is our Jennifer Lawrence forever, I would say. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that. That's so. right. All right. Uh, well, Pablo, we appreciate it. It was, it was uh, worth the wait. And um, and uh, thanks for coming on. I will see you guys in another ten months. Yes, <laughs> sooner. You. Come on, Abs- <laughs> absolutely sooner. Yes. All right. See we you, love man. you, man. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. So you're still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Let's uh, talk about the fucking game for a sec. Okay. I only have like okay. I have less than ten minutes. I literally right. have less than ten minutes. So let we how can about, do it. But how about Nick Stauskas not only making the team but having a fucking kick-ass opener? Come on. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't the the reality is is that we need to trade him right now. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is that was the Nick Stauskas game. If anyone left in the NBA was still believing that it was possible that he could do that, I think it is time now to make sure that we now. Does anyone want him? Can someone he give us so good? Yeah, I so he had bounce. He had, he was dribbling confidently. He was finding people. He de- he just did so many nice little things. He was finishing inside. He was getting fouled. I mean, honestly, even when Stauskas was on last year and his shot was working, which was rare, but even when it was, he didn't look that good. That was the best I've ever seen him look. And he did he and he didn't make a single three. He was over one from deep. Yeah, and he looked so good. He, I mean, I'm I'm very excited. Obviously, yeah. lot 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 of stuff to to go. But if he can pull. If he can just develop his game in a way that he's doing that kind of thing and then opening up the shot with the drive, then, man, that's a real player in there. How you feeling? Yeah, I think it was a fluke. <laughs> oh, come on. All right, let's move on. TJ didn't take a single shot. Perfect. Yeah, he didn't take a shot, I'll tell you. Um, Seven I, assists, so I, clean. I really wish Sergio was like 20% better. Because yeah. there is a, a a marked difference between Sergio and TJ offensively. The problem with Sergio, and I'll tell you, the the place I don't even care about defense. The place I wish he was twenty percent better is he really he is a little too slow and can't get by people, and he's yeah. not quite crafty enough to get by people. So he needs everything has to be pick and roll. You know, like it, he can't get by anybody without it. And I just I. I, I know it's not coming, but I just wish he, he had a little bit more than he actually has. Totally. But the shot looks nice, and he's super nifty with the ball. 
in his hands. Even when he's moving slow, he's he's got sort of like a high step bounce thing, which change of pace that he can sort of get get not get by people, but get to a spot where he can then make the next play. If that makes any sense, like yeah, he's not well, he's a, he's not he is a and he's a fantastic passer. I yeah, mean, totally. a fantastic passer. There's gonna be so much fun with Sergio. He's I mean he had a he had a fucking great opener and TJ. I mean TJ covering like Russell Westbrook, like for extended periods of time, is just so heartwarming for me it's so great i he's better i mean look we i wrote about this before and bauman helped me bauman obviously hates tj and it'll be forever why i don't want bauman around but tj's more than just white point guard like he's more than just scrappy white point guard he he has legitimate (laughs) skills and more athleticism than people give him credit for but He's, he's, more than, point guard. he's more than uh, scrappy white point guard in that he is the quintessential scrappy white point guard. <laughs> like he is the best version of scrappy white point yeah, guard. Yeah, I mean he is scrappy and he is white, but he, can also, but he can also do other stuff. He's not Aaron Kraft. He's not just like, oh, he just try-harded enough to get here. Like, right, right, right. He has more ability and he has he's a good passer. He's, he's fast. You know, he doesn't get credit for his speed. Like with the ball in his hands, like he pushes the ball really, really nicely. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Jaleel had a couple really nice moves that I liked on offense. I think he he worked on defense a couple times. I mean, it's his first game in a while, first legitimate game in a while. So I, obviously, I'm not expecting all of his improvements to to come right out of the way. But I I I was encouraged by a few signs from Jaleel Okafor. Let's say uh, that. Yeah, I was I was I, watching him. I was actually sort of open to the idea of him uh, this year, and then watching him made me once again like. I, I, I can't take a year of watching him. I just I can't take a year of the palming the ball. Um and, You're gonna and, have to take it. And, You're well, gonna have to take it. and I'll tell you another thing. Anyone who said that he came into camp like, oh my god, look at the shape that Julia Okafor's in, he looks, he looks exactly the, same. the fucking it's, same. Yeah, it's exactly the same. So, you look at him and and the, again the problem with that is you look at if people are like, Well, he can be in his in his canter. And it's like Cantor is is an incredible offensive rebounder. He is an incredible. Yeah. He he generated like seemingly ten points just by being in the right spot and laying it up afterwards. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, like even at the end of the game. I mean, the the game ceiling bucket after Embiid blocked. I think it was Oladipo or Samaj Christian. Uh, he was right there for the layup, and that was the game. So I, it's he needs to have he needs to be an exceptional rebounder to be able to make up for. His defensive inefficiencies and how he sort of stops the ball on offense. I, he was looking to pass more. Uh, he just sort of didn't do it. So that's um, we'll see. We'll. See. I mean, let let's. Obviously, we're both not huge Okafor fans, but let's give him some time to like get into the swing of the of the league since he's been out for so long. Nope. 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 That's nope, fine. Nope. Covington. Yeah. Looks great. Uh, yeah. You know what's funny? Live in person. He seemed unimpressive, and then looking at the stat line, sort of at the end of it, I think it's because he only hit that one three. I think he only hit one three. He had two. Uh, um, the stat line at the end of the game, and and um, I guess the reviews of the game felt better than it felt. It's funny when you're watching in person that close, you miss a lot. Oh, you know? totally. Yeah, totally. no. So I, I, and all I was watching was Embiid uh, most of yeah. the time. So I missed a lot on Covington. He looked. I mean, this is. Obviously, we expect him to some games get hot and some games play the small ball four, some games line up at a traditional three. Um, but he, the fact that he's no longer, especially when Simmons gets back, he's no longer going to have to be this, and Bayless too, be this like, 
okay, our best shot is a contested 26-footer, then I think he'll have many more open looks. I think he showed an element he, – he showed passing in his game that wasn't there the past two years. He played really nicely on defense. He was just a very effective, efficient, like good, modern 3-4 player. And the fact that he doesn't have to do as much I think will be immensely helpful the rest the rest of his game yeah jeremy grant looked good in the second half i thought uh jeremy grant looked good in the second half i i i thought he had moments in the second half as well i'm curious to see how they look against i I mean now we just got to see more games uh yeah all that stuff um and by the way like the thunder have so many shitty players on their team I, I, if, if they, I will say this, if they win 45 games, go ahead and give Russell Westbrook the MVP because that there's a lot of shitty players on that team. A lot well, of shitty players. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, we got too many Sixers to talk about before we get there. The game's about to start. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dario didn't look what, didn't look great. No. But, uh, that's okay. I mean, he just missed some shots. He's still, it's, it's, it's still impressive to see him like, be tough for rebounds and be and get positioning and find guys. And I think he's just he's going to have these games where it's 5-7 and 2 and like bad shooting, but then I'll uh, but then I'll step out. I mean, he's he seems to me like he'll have his moments, but most most of the most of his rookie year will be non-box score toughness yeah. and fighting for rebounds and tipping and, and I th- I think it'll be I think it'll be a nice if not flashy season for Dario. All right, I legit have to go. I, I, I'm sorry. I have to okay. go. Um, and then... Uh, Rashawn looked good. I want to see Rashawn. As much Rashawn as possible. All right, can we go? I legitimately have to go. I'm sorry. All right, it's going to be great. Um, yeah, and uh, tip-off is in seven minutes as of when we record it right now. So, uh, And Beat will go, what, 35 and 14 and it's 20 minutes today. I that think. sounds right. If Staskis has the worst game of his life, you have to delete, delete this podcast. Yes, I will. Uh, this <laughs> has been the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, proudly brought to you by L.L. Pavorsky Jewelers, 707 Walnut, always at com. Are you down with TTP? Yes, you know Lickface. Like I said, won't you hit some-